You're listening to the Team Guru Podcast, bringing to life the theory and principles of leadership. Hello and welcome to the Team Guru Podcast. My name's David Frizzell. It's great to have you along for the ride as always. In this episode, I have another repeat offender. Way back, episode 89, 2018, I spoke with Jackie Scammell about the future of service. It's a great episode, by the way. Check it out if you haven't already. Jackie has written a new book. It's called Service Habits, and it's all about working out the bad habits we get into when we serve our customers, internal and external. And then we're going to work out how to replace them with good habits. So a fair bit of this chat is about those service habits. But a lot of it also is focused just on habits in general that fascinating and powerful idea of how we humans deliberately build and maintain good habits in our life. It's a great chat. Jackie's awesome. Enjoy. Jackie Scammell, welcome to the Team Guru podcast. Thanks for having me, David. You're a return visitor, Jackie, my favorite type I've been doing the podcast about five years now, and I'm, I'm getting a few return customers, and I really like that. I, I find that they're always really nice chats because we've got a bit of a history now. Well, that's exactly right, and you must be doing something um, well, deepening relationship, I would say, if you've got return customers. People are coming back. I think <laughs> I had my, my first ever third time up. What are your triple repeat uh, the other day? That was nice. Nice. Now, this is your second book, Jackie, and it's a fabulous one, Service Habits. I just admitted to you before we hit record that I, I just planned on skimming it today, but I ended up reading basically the whole thing because it is fabulous. I don't say that about all the books that come on the show, but yours is a really good one. It's cut straight to the heart of it. Is this your second book? It is. It's my second published book. I'm getting into a bit of a rhythm, I must say. I absolutely had a blast writing this one too. Really enjoyed it. So it was two years since you released your last one. Does it, is it pretty much a case of you just got stuck into the second one as soon as the, the sort of the hub hub of the, the first one was over? Yeah. One of the challenges of being an author is once it's out there, it's, it's done and, and you know, your thinking evolves. And of course, with current situation, COVID, life evolves and uh, so too does your thinking. So no sooner do you publish, David, and you're like, ah, I've got to get the next one out. <laughs> well, you've got an obvious topic to try and cover now, I guess. The the whole COVID situation and the way that will change the service industry is a, a pretty obvious next step for you, but we won't get ahead of ourselves. Let's talk about this one. Now, I remember in our first conversation, we had a great chat about whether customer service is dead. And we talked about the changing nature of customer service. That's episode 89 for listeners who haven't listened to that one and and like the sound of Jackie. Fabulous conversation. I listened to it myself again today, as I mentioned to you before we hit record. It was really great. I loved the conversation we had about the changing nature of customer service as technology increases and where it's all headed. And we talked about whether or not there was going to be a, a renaissance of true customer service and and the answers to that were were really rich and and quite lovely to think about what the future holds for us. You gave us your six mindsets for customer service. Now, in this one, your second book, it's called The Service Habits. And the second word really captures my attention there. We're obviously going to talk about um, how you provide services to customers, internal and external. 
in this conversation, but I really want to focus a little while on just the idea of understanding, breaking down, and forming new habits, because that really is at the core of your thesis in this book. It sure is, and it it grabbed my attention like it did you a few years ago when I realized that you know, we're talking about human behavior mostly when it comes to service and, and employee interaction. And human behavior, you know, change to change human behavior, it takes time. So I'd love to lean into a conversation around habits because it's been fascinating working with organizations and watching how they've approached their service culture journey by, you know, embracing small, tiny habits. Because it's, it's just kind of like the, the service bit your core knowledge, your the industry that you work in, that's the application of the skill. It's the core understanding is the idea of human behavior, as you mm. say. Hey, you mentioned a number of people when you reference your research, but the one that jumped out to me was Robin Sharma. I really like Robin Sharma. I love his energy. For those of you who don't know him, he wrote, I think his first book was called uh, The Leader Who Had No Title, and then he wrote a book about the monkeys who sold his Ferrari. They are really quite fantastic books. They're very readable. And they're the sort of thing, especially the leader who had no title, for me at least, it really shaped part of the way that I think about leadership. It was a bit of a foundation piece for me as a leadership consultant. He's an energetic little guy, isn't he? You, you mentioned in the book that you went to his summit that he's always flogging off via email just about every day of yeah. the year. What was that <laughs> like? He's an overmarketer, I must say. As much yeah. as I love him, he's an overmarketer. I've got a I've got to block his emails sometimes, but <laughs> what was the summit like, Jackie? Well, you know, Robin, he really talks about mastery. So he markets to people that are really trying to be their best professional self. And I flew to Stockholm, God, it was years ago now. Just to, for that? Yeah, to, to wow. sit in a room with him for a day and I guess be, be able to ask questions too about the work that I'd followed. And so I've always been a bit of a fan of his work and the way he languages things and, mm. and he's always so that's, aspirational. That's his gift, isn't it? Isn't yeah. It? His language. Yeah. So um, Robert has – Robert. <laughs> Robin, Robin Sharma. Robin has a, um, an, a habit installation methodology, which is what I've referred to in the book and I use both in my personal life and, and teach organisations, and that is the 66-day installation process. And so what he says is that the first 20 days of trying to change a habit is really hard at first and you're going against the the neurons that have been wired in your brain, the messages that you've told your brain for so many days, weeks, months, years. And so it feels like you're going against the current. And then the next sort of 20 days or so is really messy where you're starting to rewire these patterns to the brain, but the brain's still going, yeah, but what about the old way? And then the last phase is those last sort of 20, 26 days or so, which is what he refers to as beautiful in the end. And they're beautiful because it actually is then a new path has been rewired. It is then easier for you to do the habit than to not do it. There's lots of theories out there about 21 days, et cetera, but I find that 66 days is definitely a, a no-brainer and it certainly embeds a new habit. Let's, I'm probably testing you here because this is not exactly what your book's about, but it's such a fascinating topic to both of us. Do you mind dwelling on each of those three phases a little bit and we'll talk about what they mean? So they were the first 20 days is destruction, so breaking down the old habit. 
That's the it. second set of 20 days is confusion, where you've been doing this new thing for a while, but it's not quite hardwired yet. And the old habit is still coming back to you. And the third set of 20 days is integrated and it feels like a new way of being. And it's this beautiful new phase where you you living that new habit. Hey, here's a, here's a question before we break down each of these three stages. Where's the other six days? Jackie, my maths is not that bad. <laughs> No, I think it's the last phase. He he sort of riffs over that and says, you know, 20, 26 days, ah, give or take. Okay. Right. Gotcha. All yeah. right. So how do we break down a habit in the first 20 days? So I'm going to give you my personal anecdote, and this is going to give, give away a little bit how far in advance I record. So we've been in isolation now for well over 66 days, the, the general kind of uh, social distancing and, and almost a lockdown situation. And it just so happened that a little bit before that, Jackie, I jumped on the scales, and this is a this is a story that's familiar to so many of us. I jumped on the scales, and at 44 years of age, I was the heaviest I had ever been by a mile. And it was actually quite shocking how heavy I'd gotten. And fast forward to today, I'm now 15 kilos lighter, and I feel like my new eating habits and my new exercise regime is a way of life. Fingers crossed, because of course, you know, only eight weeks is sort of, you know, eight weeks worth of water has passed under the bridge. But I can see each of those stages and what I went through. I broke down the habits that had got to me to that point, you know, and it's pretty clear. It's um, for me, I, I'm always a good exerciser, but it was mm. the eating side of things. And it was, it was two pronged essentially. It was the ice cream and chocolate after dinner every night. Mm. And that was a real habit. It, it felt odd when I didn't do it. And the other one, and I did this all day, every day was overeating. So I really only ate three meals, but I would eat, I don't know, at a guess, you know, twice as much. I would go past the point of feeling full by 100%. And I would just keep eating. And I got used to this enormous mound of food sitting on my plate and mm. the concept that I would eat that. So I broke it down and I, I just deconstructed it that way. Hey, there's only two things wrong here. Number <laughs> one is that I eat way too much and I eat way past the point of feeling full. And number two is I eat a whole pile of ice cream and chocolate every single night of the week. So <laughs> it was really easy to identify that. And then I just went and I just flicked the switch because the scales were so ugly. I just said, all right, that is it. I'm just not doing that anymore. And I, I stopped eating. I, I went, made a point of just stop eating, push my plate to the side when I felt even, it's essentially when I stopped feeling hungry. I didn't feel anywhere near full and I banned myself for eight weeks from any junk food at all. And the, the progress I made was astronomical. But you know, but still, even though I'd lost heaps of weight in that first twenty days and felt so much better for it, there was still this pull back to those old habits because it wasn't that long ago. Yeah. Uh, and now I've come through the other side. I look at that. I look at that overeating, and it makes me feel disgusting. I look at chocolate and ice cream, and I really want some because I love it. But the idea of eating it every night just seems really weird to me, and and a little bit barbaric. You know, that behavior that just eight weeks ago was part of my everyday routine. Tell us about your experiences mm. with habit breaking. And am I right in thinking, you know, so many people start a diet like I did and where they fall down is in that second, third, that confusion stage mm. where even though they've made progress and they've been doing it a while, the old way is still pulling them back. 
Yeah. Well, first of all, congratulations. That's a great achievement. I'm so happy to hear. Well done. And I guess what I love about your story, and I'm reflecting on really what's the trigger to sort of want to change a way or a behavior or start a new habit or break an old habit. And, you know, you explained you jumped on the scales and that was a bit of a a shock slash epiphany for you. Yeah, that's exactly right. there's a guy called Professor B.J. Fogg who um, he wrote the book Tiny Habits, so he's a great reference for any of the listeners who, who want to dive deep into this. But he Fogg says that you need one of three things to happen if you want to change a behaviour slash habit. First is you need an epiphany. Second is change the environment. So I know for me if I move houses or if I move cities or if I move my office around and change the furniture, it's going to set me up to change a habit, yeah. Mm-hmm. And then the third, he says, is taking baby steps, which really is what, you know, I've lent into in terms of changing behaviour and looking at little baby steps to shift habits. So for me, the first phase, the hard phase, I reckon it all comes back to being super conscious. The first phase is no doubt hard. And if we've created bad habits like eating chocolate every night or ice cream every night, we're probably doing it to a point where Robin Sharma would describe as automaticity. So you're doing it at a- Mechanically. Completely and probably unconsciously. You probably don't really desire it. It's just the thought of it and the conditioning that you've set up in your mind. And that's so true. Sometimes I would sit down with an enormous bowl of ice cream and think, I really don't feel like this. Yeah. I'm not being treated right now. But hey, you know, that's what I do. That's it. So I, I reckon if you've got, if you're conscious to the fact that you want to break a bad habit, and I say bad in inverted commas, or you want to start a new habit, those first 20 days are super crucial. And um, I'm curious to know, actually, David, did you have like an accountability buddy or did you have someone that was holding you to account in that first 20 days? No, I didn't. And, you know, un- often when I have a goal, I, I say it really publicly to try and yeah. you know, sort of hold myself to account. I did yeah. it in this case, yeah. Uh, but I was determined I was going to do it. And I actually didn't mention it to anyone, not even my wife. Yeah. And she'd been traveling a lot for work around that period. And on her second trip back, so she w- was probably away for, I don't know, three or four weeks out of six. And the second time she came back, she went, wow, you're looking slim. And actually, by that point, I'd lost eight kilos. Wow. And so I didn't mention it to anyone. But that wasn't because I didn't think I would do it. I think it was because I I didn't need to be accountable to anyone. I was accountable to myself. And that was by far the most important person. Yeah. Well, I certainly think that some good old-fashioned things such as tracking. So I'm a big fan of having like a little habit tracker or a habit journal. I'm really big fan of accountability. And like you, David, I like to make myself sometimes publicly accountable to things that I'm trying. And particularly in those first phases, those first 20 days or so, you want to feel progress because it is hard. And then when you get into that second phase of messy, you really want to feel progress. It's kind of like, imagine you're looking at the score of like a video game and you can see the score going up, 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 up. You want to create some sort of progress or tracking where you too can see your score going up. So, for example, if there's 30 days in a month, you want to see that you you did that habit 27 times in that month and you get a gold star for that. 
And yeah. these this sounds really, you know, sort of childlike, but it actually works because it you're telling your brain you're winning, you're winning, you're making progress, keep going, keep going. And if there's one thing I know for sure, motivation is not permanent. So we've got to do things such as, you know, play games, gamify it, track progress, accountability, et cetera, to keep the healthy tension and motivation daily. Whether it's a half-day energizer session or a comprehensive team and leadership program, Team Guru's unique approach could be just what the doctor ordered for your organization. In my case, that was really easy. The scoreboard was the scales. And I was making such good progress early, it was actually easy to stay on with. But not all habits we're trying to break are as measurable as the scales. And I, and I know the whole story about scales aren't a great indication of health anyway, but you know that aside, there are other ways to do it. I heard Jerry Seinfeld once talk about the fact that it's, it's actually quite hard work to be a comedian and you've got to stick to it every day. And one of the rules he made for himself was that he was going to write a joke every day, just one joke, and he had to sit down and actually write it. And when he did that, he would put a cross on the calendar to say, yep, today I did what I promised myself I would do. And then, of course, it became an obsession to not break the link, not break the chain of crosses that he had on his calendar. So it is really nice to have that kind of whatever your goal is, to have that little bit of accountability that is visual and and shows you that, yep, I've stuck to my game. I love your idea of gold stars. Yeah, I love that, Jerry. I love that Jerry example too. That's brilliant. But it is, it's doing things, creating an environment, whether it's with people or places or literally in an office or on a calendar that you can keep sharply focused on your progress. And I build this into my programs with businesses and leaders. I provide them with tracking journals and tools because it's, it really does work. So that hey, would, one of, one of yeah. the things you say in your book is that you're you're about the baby steps. And mm. when I look at just in my anecdote, I didn't take baby steps. I stood on the scales one night, and then I said, "Okay, from now on, I'm eating eating half as much as I used to, and I'm I'm not touching ice cream and chocolate for months." So that that was not baby steps. That was band aid, ripping a band aid off the seeping wounds of my terrible habits. Mm. What you, is that a is that is that not for everyone? Because I, I feel like if I took baby steps and my progress was tiny, I might have become. Uh, it wouldn't have been as addictive for me. I reckon you've been here before. I reckon you've done this before, and so your your level of competency around knowing what levers to pull to feel good, drop some weight, and feel healthy probably wasn't something new to you. I'm just making a, a guess here. Yeah, you're right. But hey, doesn't that say something bad? If I've been no. <laughs> here before, then I haven't made it stick. So, well, I guess my point is that, you know, if we want to inspire people to do new habits, we need to check in, like, do they have a competency on actually, do they actually know how to do it? And are they willing? And so I kind of feel like your story, which is a great example, and most people could relate to, the willingness was there, the motivation was there, that was evident. But did you have the competency? Did you have the know-how to make the change? And yeah. so that's why I made an assumption that you've been here before because you had such great results so quickly. But then you raise the next point, which is, and so how sticky is this yeah. new habit? Yeah, that's right. And yeah. that's yeah, and that's where this habits conversation is super interesting when it comes to, you know, leveling up your soft skills or being a better leader or something that you feel is going to really make a difference in the way you impact people in your life. 
we want to put this effort in because it is effort. Like changing something takes a whole lot of effort. So I feel like, well, if you're going to put the effort in, let's try and make it stick and let's make it so part of your DNA and your new normal that the old way is just, sure, it's just, it never happened the old never way. happened, or better, <laughs> it only exists as a lesson. Hey, we are going to get to service habits, and I know that this podcast should be partly at least about the service habits, but I, I love the habits part, so I'm going to ask one more question before we start talking specifically about service. In that last third, the the 20 days of integrated, making it integrated and, and, and making it feel like part of the way that you live, what are the dangers there? So we've got past the first stage, which is deconstructing or destructing understanding what's gone wrong or what the bad habit is about. We've gone through the second phase where there's still confusion because we're being pulled back to our old habit. What's the danger or what's the trick at that third stage where we're integrating the new behavior? Keep conscious, keep present. Don't let your guard down. Don't hang up the boots. (laughs) Don't let your guard down. That's the one. Yeah. Yeah. I think that, look, once you've got through that threshold, things are feeling pretty good and you're feeling fairly confident that you've got this. And again, you know, setting things up so that you're not tempted. Like I'm one of those classic people, David, that if there's chocolate in the house, I'll eat it. So just don't put chocolate in the house, you know. And James Clear, who wrote the book uh, Atomic Habits, who I, yeah, who actually I met when he was out here in Australia. He's a very, very clever man. And he often talks about the trigger, you know, what's the cue? What's the trigger that is actually before the habit? So for example, I have a 5 a.m. ritual, which I've wired as a habit in my personal life. It's something that doesn't come naturally to me. I, I've learned how to be an early riser and it's really important to me. So I have my morning rituals before the day gets underway. And so the, the cue and the trigger for me at night is to put out my my activewear, put out the things that I know I'm going to need so I can literally just get up half asleep and put the clothes on for yoga and meditation. So I think that if you get through that 66-day period, you're into the third phase, you're feeling really confident that you've you've nailed it, make sure you keep supporting that habit with little triggers and cues and, and remove things that are going to tempt you and put things in place that you know are going to really inspire you. Mm, that's great advice. And then James Clear is another one, isn't he? He has, a really ex- he has an excellent online presence and does some really good writing around habits. Now, I bet I've caught you by surprise here. You probably didn't think you were coming on this podcast to pontificate just on the habits bit. Let's combine that with your extensive knowledge about service, customer service, whether that's, as I said earlier, internal customers or external customers. We're going to answer a few really basic questions now. Let's talk about the bad service habits. We'll identify those habits and service that need to be broken. Then we'll talk about what we need to replace them with, and then we'll talk about how you go about replacing them. So paint a picture for us, Mm. Jackie. What sort of industries are we talking about? What kind of organizational setups are we talking about Mm. when you're able to identify these five bad service habits? Yeah, look, any type of industry really that's got, you know, service professionals at the front line all the way up to leaders. So think about financial, like bank, financial institutions, airports, stadiums, retail, to give you sort of a flavor, food and beverage, of course. And, you know, when I was writing the book, David, I was thinking about, you know, putting in this book the how-to, how to create new habits and here are the habits that we need to look at for service. But then I had this realization, well, hang on a minute, 
there are certainly a lot of organizations that would probably say that, well, we've got some bad habits within our culture that perhaps we need to look at first before we can really form some new, more positive habits. So I summarized what I've defined as bad service habits into sort of five things. And I reckon we can all relate to these if there's employees serving customers and, and you know, you've got teams around you. So the first- Yeah. So before, before you get into that, just so I'm crystal clear in my own mind, because I thought I was. Yeah. If with, with Identifying these bad habits- is eliminating the bad habits the same as creating good ones, or do we are they are they mutually exclusive? So I've got to actively eliminate the bad ones, and then I've got to actively implement the good ones. There's definitely an element of you need to let go of these bad habits because it's going to be counterproductive <laughs> if you serving someone using all of these new service habits that are really positive and uplifting <laughs> and, and you're still, still behaving poorly yeah uh-huh. then uh, yeah we're going to we're probably not going to really shift the dial in the way we serve people so how do you normally do it do you normally do like a parallel program where you're getting rid of identifying getting rid of the bad ones and at the same time educating staff on the good ones i'm just really interested in how that works out practically yeah practically we actually kick off by getting them to identify with some things that they believe get in the way. So get them to own what they believe are some of their bad habits. What are the things that get in the way of them connecting with people, listening, you know, being present so that they kind of own it themselves and they've got language that they can sort of lean on. And I reckon this is probably my favourite one, this first one, which is try to control the outcome. And I think this is a great habit in life, really. A great teacher has taught me for many years that, you know, we can't control any other human. They're all unpredictable, as we know. And really, the only thing you can control is yourself and the way you respond to situations. So, if you see in in a service environment an employee trying to control the way a customer might think or what they might say, or they get really disappointed because what they expected didn't happen, then it's just energy wasted, in my view. So, that's the first habit. And it's a it's a really big concept if you think about it in life because it's kind of like the art of letting go and the art of surrendering to what's actually happening in front of you. And let's face that, it, we never know what, what customers are going to do sometimes. <laughs> that's a, that, that lesson that you just shared with us, that's one of the most important things I learned as a teacher. I, I began my career as a high school English teacher and mm-hmm. we one of the schools I was at, we did, I think it was is his name Bill Glasson? And he added something called control theory. Mm-hmm. And the epiphany for me as a young teacher was that you cannot control someone else's behavior. The only person you can control is your own. And as silly as that sounds, that was actually a light bulb moment for me as a, as a young guy. Yeah. And you can see how that just gets in the way, right? Like what a customer or another employee brings to the situation is going to be what it's going to be. So, Yeah. This one particular uh, bad habit creates a lot of interesting conversations with people. Yeah, it's fantastic. What's number two? So the second one's blaming others. So think about a, a team environment. You know, we've probably all heard of the saying, don't throw your colleagues under the bus. This is really taking ownership for your part in a task, in, in a service chain, and, you know, admitting that, look, none of us like to be wrong but if something does happen and we're responsible for it, then, you know, getting to the point quickly of being proactive and fixing the problem rather than playing the blame game, no one likes, you know, finger pointing. So if you're seeing that in, in your team or you're seeing that in your workplace, then 
that's certainly a, a bad habit that I would encourage people to look at, be honest about and break because it's, it's creating toxicity in the culture. And you made a really good point in your book that for as far as the customer is concerned, you are the company. So for you to say, oh, I'm sorry, ma'am, that's sales did that. You'll have to call them. Or I'm sorry, sir, that's not anything to do with us. That's um, marketing. You know, that's a really bad look for the organization in the eyes of that customer because you are the organization. And and I can think of two utility companies, actually. There's the one that we all know that I use for my mobile phone. They are fantastic at just passing the buck internally mm. and telling you whatever problem it is, it's it's another part of the business. It's not their fault. Mm. And I have a starkly different experience with my home internet provider who seems to have cottoned onto that as one of the challenges in the market and has worked out that if if I'm on the phone to them, they are the company and they will never blame another department or never put me on hold and send me on a merry-go-round of on wait on on call waiting. It's a really stark difference in customers. Is that the kind of stuff that you had in mind as well Absolutely. when you talked about blaming yeah. others? You're spot on, spot on, Dave. And I mean, how good would it be if every employee had a mindset that, you know, I represent the company and and my word matters, you know, that would just be a brilliant <laughs> culture. But unfortunately, we do see people blame others. And I think it's just from fear more than anything. And there's another dynamic that's so common in organisations in, in lots of different industries it's head office's fault. Yes. You know, we're we're an you're a, we're a service providing outpost, and sorry, this decision was made by head office. There's nothing we can do about it. Oh, it's our system. They've given us a terrible system to use, which might all be true. But as far as the customer sees, they just see a really badly a non cohesive unit. For sure, yeah. And blaming others leads really nicely into the third one, which is gossiping. Now, this might sound a little odd in a business professional book as a bad habit, but I learned this lesson the hard way when I was a young girl at McDonald's and I feel very strongly about this. You know, the the saying how you do anything is how you do everything, right? So if that one time you decide to speak poorly of a customer, it just might be the one time that the record button's still on or the receiver of the phone wasn't hung up correctly. Like it's just not worth it. And uh, you hit reply all instead of reply. Yes, that, that old <laughs> chestnut. Or even worse, you hit reply instead of forward. Oh, I'm sure everyone's cringing. We all yeah. we all get it, right? So we've all got a story. Totally. Is there something that is constructive or productive in gossiping about this person? Probably not. Then why do it? So just take it out of your your psyche, you know? Just don't do it. Just don't do all. it. Yeah. Yeah, I like it. And then the fourth one, I think this is a really great bad habit because I think it comes into a little bit of pride and maybe even a little bit of ego, which is that many people avoid asking for help. You know, they they pride themselves in in having the answers, in being helpful, in being valuable. But sometimes that can, you know, be the worst thing that they could do because we're not all meant to have all the answers. We don't have all the answers. And, you know, if you're afraid of looking silly or not having all the answers, this could limit the experience for the customer. So avoiding asking for help is is a very immature, childlike thing to do. And I think those that, you know, do ask for help are putting the customer in the center of the conversation once again. And then, of course, the last one, which, um, you know, I kind of use this philosophy in life when I maybe have a bad experience, David, in a restaurant or something, which is complaining. 
then none of us like to walk into, let's say, like a, a clothing store and there's two staff members behind the counter and they're having a good old, like, you know, whinge about their manager. Like it just, it sends a message, doesn't it, about the brand? Yeah. So don't do it. And if you are going to complain, then make sure it's constructive. Make sure that it's something that you're looking for an outcome, for a change, for an improvement. But to complain for the sake of complaining, kind of like gossiping, it's not going to get you far at all. So these are things that I look for in work cultures. And and you can imagine like it can be a bit crispy at times when it's raised, but you can Mm. see how they do get in the way of people connecting. They're a fabulous set of bad habits. And I can think of a number of workplaces that I've been part of that would identify with a handful of those and really understand that it's actually holding them back quite significantly as an organization, as a workplace culture. You reminded me then when you used the restaurant anecdote, you you told a little story in your book that I'm going to share with everyone, Jackie. (laughs) Folks, when Jackie and her husband go to a restaurant, they do something which you could either consider to be lovely or to be highly manipulative. They introduce (laughs) themselves by name to their waiter and that creates this beautiful instant personal connection and they get the best service of any diner in the whole restaurant. And I think it's really nice. And only a cynic would suggest that that's manipulative, but it it probably works. And I bet you do it. I bet there's part of the reason you do it is not for the human connection, Jackie, but because you get good service. <laughs> I learned this from my husband, I have to tell you. This is not Dominic. one of my this is not one of my handy handiwork. But it works. It well, absolutely it. works. And if I'm ever going to, and it going is, to a restaurant and it is again. totally it's all in the delivery. Like if there is even the slightest tone of manipulation, it won't work. Mm, yeah. But yeah. Have you guys ever come up short? No, we I think we do take a lot of staff by surprise though, because yeah. it's the last thing they expect is for two customers to sit down and say, Hello, um, this is this is Jackie and this is Costa and um, what's your name? And they look at us like, who are you? <laughs> but, but, but it's you know it's easy to put it down to the names, but then you obviously follow it up by being good, caring, yeah. engaging people. You know, yeah. so it, it all fits. It seems authentic because of your behaviour. If you just did that and then expected to get wonderful service, you'd look like a complete you know, fill the blank. But it's also a universal law, right? I think I spoke about this in my first book. One of the mindsets is energy. It's it's a two-way exchange of energy. So what we give off, you know, we get back. And I genuinely go into places even more so now, given that, you know, discretionary spend is going to become probably a topic that many Australians will talk about at least. If I'm going to spend my money with people in a restaurant, I want to hope that I want to go back, you know, and be a a loyal customer and it better be good. (laughs) So, yeah. All right, little story unsolicited there about you, Jackie. Now, tell us about what we should replace them with. Now, I know there are 27 habits that you talk about in your book, so we won't go through each of those, but I know that you've got a couple of highlights for us, some of those really positive habits that counteract those bad habits that you were talking about. Yeah, cool. So let's start with try to control. So one of the service habits is always follow up. Now, when we teach this, it's it's not necessarily following up to see, did you do it? But rather following up to see, how did you go? And this can work for employee or customer. So if You think about like a bank, for example, if they've got three or four different people they've got to speak to to get a home loan. If you had a relationship with that customer at the beginning and you want to circle back 
then following back up with them in, you know, two, three weeks time when you knew that the deal would be done just to check in and go, how did you go? Um, it, it so is, and it's also really powerful internally too. You know, if you're relying on an employee that maybe keeps letting the team down or you feel like they haven't quite understood the importance of something, just to check in and go, how did you go with, you know, task X as opposed to saying, did you do it, is a really gentle way of learning more about a situation. And like we said, you can't control people, you can't control everything, but you can learn a little bit more by just asking a simple question. Mm, that's very good. Our blame others one. So, you know, keeping in mind that we don't want to encourage people to throw others under a bus. And if, if you're responsible for something, then put your hand up and say, look, yeah, this was my part in it. So the service habit that I would suggest for this one is raise others around you effortlessly. And this is about looking for good behavior. You know, I'm sure, David, you've spoken about this with, with other guests that we have a negative bias. Our brains are wired for this. And so we're always looking for bad in situations. We're looking for the gap. We're looking for the deficit. And it's it's really human. And if we can wire our ways, particularly as leaders, to look for what's taking place on the shop floor or in our teams that's good and call it out when we see it, it actually is a really effortless way of raising others and showing people this is the good behavior. This is what we want to support more of. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. Gossiping. <laughs> and by the way, I've got a million things to say about that, but I'm trying not to. Otherwise, I'll keep you here all night. So take my silence, not as sort of glib, <laughs> get on with it, Jackie, but as me bursting to say a million things, but uh, thinking better of it. No, thank so you. Tell us about your counteracting gossip habit. Gossiping. Well, this is one of the very last habits that I speak to, which is be impeccable with your word. And I reckon this is like, oh my God, it's so important for us to be extremely choice with our words, you know, right time, right word. Think about politicians, you know, think about how Trump has effectively uh, changed the language via Twitter, you know, in, in many cases. We have a responsibility in service or in leadership really to be very, very conscious about the language we use when we're speaking with other people. So in many ways, throwaway comments, stuff that we think is just, you know, a passing comment could actually really stick and have a negative impact if it's meant, you know, not with um with good intent. So be impeccable with your word, be mindful of the language. I, I present a whole bucket of language to avoid and language to use more of in service interactions to really strengthen relationships. Because that's I mean, that's a beautiful sentence, be impeccable with your word, but mm. there's a whole there's a whole artistry behind that. There is. It's a really beautiful way of life too, actually, is to just – and you know what? Sometimes we need to slow down to be able to do that, just slow yeah. it down a bit. Yeah. I remember just one of the little micro tips you gave in your book was just give yourself four seconds, yeah. just four seconds. to to You don't feel as though you have to reply to everything straight away, even when a customer is standing in front of you. Just count to four and give yourself that space to think and respond purposefully rather than sort of reactively. Spot on. And we're actually – We'll use that now for complaining because okay. I think with complaining, sometimes it is a little bit of a autopilot response or a bit of a knee-jerk reaction, like someone needs to get a bit of hot air off their chest. But if we can just take a mindful pause, four seconds, the book that was authored by Peter Bregman, which is called Four Seconds, he used that as a title to basically articulate that it takes four seconds to take a breath. So if you take a deep breath in... 
and a deep breath out. It's actually enough time to send a message to the brain, to the, to the nervous system, and to activate the parasympathetic nervous system to slow down. And in that four seconds, you actually can choose a better way. So if you were going to go on a riff of complaining, you might just through a mindful second pause, ask yourself, is it really useful, me complaining, or should I just keep my mouth shut, or should I walk away? And, I- and by the way, your <laughs> breath did take four seconds. When you said four seconds, I looked at the, the counting <laughs> clock and it took you four seconds to breathe in and out. There you Brilliant. go. I practice it well, every day. It. Yeah. And then, uh, hey, you, yeah, sorry. Yeah. You, I was going to say, do you realize you missed one? You, I you, did you, because you I from three to five. I was, you, you were, I was segueing yeah, from your four segueing. seconds. So I'm, gonna, I'm going back right. to avoid Glad asking for help. Forget. No, no, no. I avoid asking for help. There's, there's a plethora of stuff in this book around questions and really any one of the habits that talks about questions is offering up a different way of you asking for help that, you know, you might not feel like you look like a ning-nong, you know. It could be just a, a way of asking for a question to find out more information or to get further context. So one of the habits is ask a better question. And I think sometimes, David, we do ask lazy questions, you know, questions that start with closed, they're closed questions like can you do this or do you do that? And if we can just take a pause and ask a better question, we can get so much more information from someone than what we what we first got. That's beautiful. I love the way you lined up. You you plucked out of your twenty seven positive habits, the ones that counteract those top five bad habits. You know, one of the other ones that I read in your book, Jackie, mm. was about remembering names. Yeah. And you nailed me when you said, stop telling yourself you're no good at remembering names. I've been telling myself that <laughs> for nearly 45 years and just giving, letting myself off the hook. I'm just not good at that. But of course, I'm, I couldn't be good at that. What it is, is I'm not focusing mm. on that. And how rude is it? Because as you say in your book, someone's name is their identity. There's a story behind it. There's a reason their parents called them that. They either love it or hate it. It's the most beautiful, recognizable word in any language to that human being. And I've just forgotten it again. And sometimes I meet people for the third and fourth time and forget their name. And there's nothing ruder than that, that sort of initial interaction point. So you have convinced me that that is one part of my life that I need to fix. Oh, awesome. And you're right. It's not a memory problem. It's, it's an attention yeah. you know, problem. It's whether I want to or not. <laughs> it's, that's, it's rude. It, and, and, and it's me not placing enough importance on that other person. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm inspired by that little, are you going to start a new habit, aren't yeah, you? Yeah, I'm going to yes. start a new habit. Yeah. Fantastic, Jackie. Now, I know I asked you to finish with five things. That was the five things, wasn't it? Yeah, we we can. Mm. Yeah, sure. Well, well, have you got something else to finish with? Well, I just I just think Please. that, you know, what underpins this whole book, and we've talked about it briefly on our chat today, which is that, you know, extraordinary service, it doesn't matter who we're serving, if it's, you know, internal, external, family, friends, community, humanity, extraordinary service comes from those who are extraordinarily present. And, you know, the names example that you've just used, David, gives us that, you know, another really practical way of when we're present, we're focused, we're giving people 100% attention, we can really connect with people and strengthen relationships much more than than just some sort of passing transactional conversation. And so if you were to say, you know, what's the secret to all these habits, I would say it's that, you know, keeping people in the moment, keeping them present, staying consciously alert during 
the time that you're with people. And really, if you can do that, which isn't that easy, then service is effortless. That is a fabulous place to end, Jackie. Thank you so much again for a wonderful conversation. I've really enjoyed having you back on the Team Guru podcast. Thank you so much for having me back. I hope I'm back for a third time when I release my next book. So. You just have to write another book, Jackie, and we'll get you back straight <laughs> oh, away. Yeah, thanks, David. Thank you very much. And that was Jackie Scammell. I love chatting with her about the process of building good habits into our lives, whether they be specifically about service or more broadly, just the good stuff we want to have in our life. As always, I'll share the lessons I took from my conversation with Jackie on the Lessons Learned page for this podcast. You'll find it along with the entire back catalogue of Team Guru podcasts on our website. That's teamswithans.guru forward slash podcast. Connect with me on Twitter, Facebook, SoundCloud, or LinkedIn, and join me for the next episode on this, my mission to bring to life the theory and principles of leadership. This is David Frizzell for Team Guru. Bye for now.